It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Well, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and uh, I got to tell you, this is a special week, um, a special time in the history of the United States of America, uh, as we're coming up on the uh, anniversary of one of the most horrific days in our nation, uh, 9-11. It's hard to believe, but it's been 20 years. Uh, for those of you that are old enough, uh, you probably remember exactly where you were and what happened. Uh, I just happened to be at home uh, with my family. My brother was here in town. And um, when that first plane struck the building, it was horrific and confusing. But when that second uh, plane hit the towers, it was obvious that our nation was under attack. And as we watched that unfold, and it was just a, an amazingly emotional time. I remember um, looking at all those firefighters and first responders and policemen and just the horror of what was happening on 9-11. And our kids at the time, my wife, uh, Julie, and I, the kids were pretty young, pretty small, and uh, didn't know what to do. But we did put together these little macaroni uh, necklaces and little notes to the firefighters to just say thank you and just tried to figure out an address that we could send to some fire department apartment you know that we it was so far away um and say prayers and remember those people and here we are 20 years later and um a lot's happened since then and um then we have what's happening in afghanistan uh or not happening however you want to look at it and it, it, that too is horrific well, one of the worst things that ever happened to our nation and so rather than do kind of the traditional um, uh, what we've done in this podcast, uh, I'm honored and thrilled to um, get Rob O'Neill. Rob O'Neill is the person who served in our military, who was part of a SEAL team that took out Osama bin Laden. He was credited with taking the shot. Uh, clearly, it was a team effort in order to put that together. Everybody from the intelligence communities to the training to the execution of it. But at the end of the day, you had to have somebody with a gun who was highly trained and put in a perfect position to actually pull the trigger. And he did that. And Rob O'Neill, uh, there's a book called The Operator that is his, I, it's just an absolutely fascinating uh, book. So I, I want to just talk to him about what happened on 9-11, the training that it took to get him into that position, you know, what that, that mission was actually like. And then at the end, uh, we called him back for actually a second interview. Uh, we'll do uh, part two as a continuation uh, in, in this podcast and get his uh, candid thoughts about what he's seeing play at, playing out in Afghanistan right now. So with that, let's dial up Rob O'Neill. Hey, this is Rob O'Neill. Rob, hey, Jason Chaffetz, so so glad to catch you. I really do appreciate <laughs> it. That is that is very cool of you to do this with me. I do appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's good to talk with you. 
Yeah, you know, um, I've had the pleasure and honor to get to know you, and we'll say this, I'm sure, several times, but uh, thank you, thank you for your service. You know, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That is, I mean, that's just hard to believe. But I tell you what, you and your team and the training that you went through to get there and take care of business and take out Osama bin Laden, the country couldn't be more proud of of you and your team and and what you did. Right at the get-go, I just want to say thank you. That's awesome. I appreciate that. It was an honor to be asked to be a part of what I consider the greatest team in history. And um, just everybody there was so experienced and it took, it took such a long time to get there. You got to figure it's, it's uh, nine months starting off of the most intense, hardest military training in the world called basic underwater demolition seal training. And then there's years and years of training in the seal teams. And then another really hard, difficult psychological uh, selection course to get into seal team six. And then just to get experienced at that team, because they picked the most experienced guys who were available for that mission. So, um, you know, I couldn't have been more honored to, uh, to watch those uh, brave men that night. It was just incredible. So the uh, biggest honor of my life. Well, look, you have a book called The Operator. And look, I've read several books that are kind of in this somewhat genre. But I tell you, this is this is absolutely my favorite. And if you haven't read The Operator... I mean, more than half the book, I think, seems like it's just the training to get to the point where you can actually go out and do missions. And what did you do? Something like 400-plus missions in your career there? Yeah, I did. That was 400 combat missions after 9-11, and I, I went in in 1996. Um, so it was, it was a long long career, a lot of training, very few missions until after 9-11, uh, but a lot of training to get there. But yeah, was, you know, we've been all over the world, of, you know, maybe 80 countries. And the book, The Operator, is um, I'm not calling myself the operator. It's it's about the life of the operator. And the operator right. is, is anyone, you know, anyone, not even necessarily in the military. It's someone who gets up and does it. And the, um, one of my favorite sayings is wherever you are, be there. And so it's anyone doing what they do um, the right way. You're the operator. And that's it's, it's proof that a, a portly white guy who can't swim from the mountains of Montana can become a Navy SEAL that doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. You're capable of doing anything you want. Just you got to keep your mind in it. Yeah, that's an interesting way of describing yourself back in high school. And, you know, one of my favorite sayings in the book is, and it was such a simple line, but it stuck with me as much as anything in the book. It said, you know, if you want to do more push-ups, do more push-ups. <laughs> that's, that's that's one of our sayings, uh, you know, KISS, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. We, we got to a point in combat, we were trying to figure out different ways because there's, there's getting indoors in combat, it gets very complex with the angles, ups and downs and, you know, hallways and door, whatever. And you'd never want to shoot your guy, obviously. So we're trying to figure out um, how do we do this if, we're, if, if, if the one train's moving this way, another train, you know, being lines of guys and we come in on each other. And, you know, do you knock on the door? Do you announce yourself? And we came up with, with the best rule. Okay, here's the new rule. Don't shoot someone who looks like you. Meaning, if he's got a helmet and night vision on, he's probably not Al Qaeda. So don't shoot him. <laughs> Keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. That's those are good rules to live by. Uh, do more push-ups <laughs> if you want to do more push-ups, and don't shoot one of our guys. Good words to live by. Um, but you know, it is at the end of the day, it's true. No matter what line of business or work or family or whatever it might be. It's kind of taking care of those things. All right, let's go back because, I mean, you write about this in the book, but um, let's go back to li- pre-Portly 
Rob O'Neill, like <laughs> when you were a little kid, because Montana, I, you know what, living out west, I grew up California, Arizona, Colorado, Utah. I mean, out west living is a lot different than a lot of people recognize out in the East Coast. Big, wide open spaces, an appreciation of nature, and but go back and kind of describe your childhood because um, Montana living is a little different than maybe Connecticut. Oh yeah, it, it is. Um a lot of outdoor activities uh, just because it's, it's available to the point where people sort of take it uh, for granted what they have there. Uh, um, you know, I remember having a, a relative come up from um, Oklahoma. He's my age, my cousin. And his mom would say, go outside and look at the mountains. I'm like, why do you sit there and look at the mountains? They're just there. But you know, you don't realize what you have. So a lot of um, fly fishing on the rivers. Uh, I was born near the three forks, the Madison, the Gallatin and the, um, it was dance. I'm gonna get some crap for that, but they turned it into the uh, Missouri River <laughs> and it turns into the Mississippi. So fly fishing there, a lot of elk hunting, deer hunting, both kinds. We have whitetail and muleys, and then uh, you know we've hunted sheep and you know just stuff that um, a lot of outdoors. It's a great, great time. I lived in a small town, but I was sort of in a bubble. I thought Butte, Montana, was the center of the universe. It's the Jefferson, is the third river, by the way. Sorry, I. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's actually where I learned to fly fish. My Uncle Joe, I came up to West Yellowstone, up by Quake Lake there on the Madison. Oh, yeah. And um, he just told me, he said, hey, bring some boots when you come up. And so I was coming up from Arizona, I had jeans. I was like 14, 15 years old, something like that. And it, the moment I got there, he, he took these boots, and uh, we cut out some shag carpet and just glued them to the bottom. Those were our waders. <laughs> that's how we did it. That's awesome. Yeah, we get what were those? Issues. What were those lessons that you? What do you think you learned as a kid? You know, going out hunting with your dad, you know, exploring the outdoors. Like, what gets in your core that maybe other kids in other atmospheres in an inner city that they miss out on? One thing that I noticed hunting was obviously you have to climb a lot of mountains if you want to get serious with bull elk in, in the Rocky Mountains. I think it was uh, short-term goals. Um, meaning I, I don't need to get to the top of the mountain. I need to get to the next tree. And once you get to that tree, it's okay. There's my next goal. And that's, that's the way we did it. You know, I, I learned little steps will, will get you the big picture. You can't, even when, I'm, when I got to um, SEAL training, I don't mean to go jump too far ahead, but one of the lessons was uh, this course is not impossible. People graduate. So don't think about the impossibility. And, and it's, it's, it's a, a lot to think. Don't think about trying to get from not a graduation to eight months away here's how you're going to get through this course. Cause I'm never going to ask you to do anything impossible. Wake up in the morning on time, make your bed the right way and brush your teeth. That's three victories. You just started the day with make it to the 5am workout on time. And as we're beating you, don't concentrate on the pain. Think about your next goal in life, which is making it to breakfast after breakfast. Your next goal is lunch after lunch, make it to dinner. And after dinner, do everything you need to do to get back inside that perfectly made bed. And because you took the time in the morning to make your bed the right way, regardless of how bad, Today was tomorrow's a clean slate and tomorrow's a fresh start. And when you feel like quitting, which you will do not quit right now, that's a motion quit tomorrow. And if you can keep quitting tomorrow, you can do anything in life. So I learned that climbing the hills, you know, I just need to get to that tree. Interesting. Now you had some jobs growing up, right? I mean, you delivered an awful lot of pizzas. I did. Well, my first job was probably to this day, my favorite job was working at McDonald's. I love that. But then I started delivering pizzas at a place called the Vu Villa, which is uh, on Park Street in Butte, Montana. That was a blast because it's a bunch of high school kids. Everything from the, the dude ringing up the register to the guy cooking the pizza to the dudes delivering it. So all of our Butte, Montana, we delivered pizza. And then uh, 
I joined the Navy. And as I was waiting to go to the Navy, I worked in a mine in Butte, Montana. Well, I wasn't a miner. I was the 18-year-old kid who could shovel silt back onto the conveyor belts in the, you know, the, the haunted tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, I went in, a, a, when I was in Congress, they let me go into a mine here in Utah. We were like a mile and a half under the earth. And, and then they oh, turned yeah. out the lights to explain what, you know, oh. outer darkness looks like. And um, it really is dark. Uh, yeah, that'll probably make you a believer. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, that's interesting <laughs> that you thought McDonald's was one of your best jobs. I mean, you're like the fourth person I've had on a podcast who's one of their first jobs is McDonald's. What'd you love about oh, yeah. McDonald's? Well, I mean, okay, I think I started at 15 years old. And so this is in you know, 1988 or seven. I don't know. Right. Something like that. I should do the math, but I'm not doing it. Um, no, I was in high school in the 90s. But um, going from not making any money to working with other basically teenagers, getting your first experience at doing stuff and then getting a check. I remember my first check I ever got in my life because of a Van Halen album. It was 5150. And, <laughs> right. you know, be, being a freshman in high school, getting 50 bucks. And the taxes that I didn't know about yet were already taken out. It's like, this is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Making and serving those fries. Okay, so you get into the Navy, but look, not everybody does that. Not every you get on that, you describe in the book, getting on that plane, and then you get some advice from another guy who's actually going to serve as well. And you you know, you're leaving your family. It's not as if you had been a world traveler before that, and suddenly you are just a fish out of water. Uh, yeah, and and I think that that's something the military teaches everybody that um, it doesn't matter again where you're from. Everyone, everyone has their first day. If you're the CEO of a company or you're the guy that went in Bin Laden's bedroom, everyone had their first day somewhere and they were nervous. And that's okay because it's natural, but you get used to it. I remember that when I took, uh, you know, I flew from Butte, Montana um, into Chicago eventually, and then we went to Great Lakes, Illinois. When I stepped off that bus and saw the instructors yelling at everybody, I remember thinking, this is the worst mistake I've ever made in my life because totally stepped out of my comfort zone. But you get used to stuff. But yeah, well, I tell you what, it was scary the first couple of days. But what was the mentality there? They're like, okay, you know, right? I mean, just got to watch a movie or two or read a book or a pamphlet. You're going to understand that they're going to be guys in your grill yelling, screaming at you as loud and, I mean, as aggressively as it is. And yet some people, I mean, they're surprised by it, right? Um, I mean, people think they made a bad decision because it's one thing to watch Full Metal Jacket for two hours. It's another thing to realize you just basically ended your life. Um, right. Again, once you get into the routine, at first it, it is shock value. And, and this is Navy boot camp. This isn't Marine Corps boot camp, which is the most intense one. But it's it's just a complete shock value. But once you start to realize, um, that, you know, someone from Butte, Montana, that, just because he's from Butte doesn't mean someone from Chicago is better. Um, you kind of, it's a realization of, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, getting into the mix of, of the country and it's, it turns into be awesome. Uh, the, the, the only the thing I didn't like was the lack of sleep, but that was it. I mean, we, it wasn't Navy boot camp is not like the movies because we don't really work out much. We put gravy on everything and we learn how to fold underwear. <laughs> okay. That's good. Uh, good work. That's true. <laughs> but Rob, you were so successful. You know, I, I just kind of reflect back on that book where, hey, only the top 1%, only the top 1%, only the top 1% is going to succeed. And yet you did. What, what do you think the difference is between what you were doing and a lot of people who, quite frankly, were incredible athletes and, you know, people who really, you'd probably look at them at the beginning and say, oh, that guy's going to make it. And then he doesn't. What's the difference? 
that's actually the truth. And, and there is something there, but we can't figure it out because it seemed to me that um, the biggest, loudest guy is the first one to quit. Right. And then because of an inferiority complex, someone that thought that dude was better, but he quit means I'm not good enough. So I need to quit. Um, it's, it's, it's total mindset that you can convince your body to do anything through your mind. Uh, you'd, be, you'd be surprised. But once your mind goes, your body's just going to follow. No one, no one ever said, yeah, I, I was going to fail, but my body pulled me through it. I mean, maybe a sprinter, but that's you know about it. Um, but the, the mindset being everything that, um, you know, like I said, one meal at a time, but, you know, I might fail something, but I'm not quitting no matter how bad it gets. And it's, it's completely in your mind. And, you, you, you know, you can't keep it a positive attitude and trying to avoid the negativity. I just learned it early on. I don't know why I had it. Maybe because I had so many people tell me I couldn't make it. That could have been just competition against someone else. So you're a guy like, you know, hey, really, you can't do that? Okay, I'm going to show you. Yeah, I will. I, I will stand here as long as I can stand here longer than you can stand here. <laughs> that's, that's true. I, I heard a story of a, from a SEAL eventually when I got into the SEAL teams who played football at Navy. And I guess they were in a game up fight. They were up at halftime. And the coach is like, we are beating Notre Dame at halftime. we got to last 30 minutes. I can eat dirt for 30 minutes. <laughs> Did they lose that game? I, I, I think they actually won it. <laughs> I hope so. It's true. It's true. You know, you say that, and I, I remember football coaches kind of saying, guys, it's, we've got 15 minutes left, just 15 minutes. I don't care yeah. how much mm-hmm. it hurts. Just keep going for 15 minutes. we got one quarter. Let's make it happen. That's good. Mindset. But when, like, like I said, once your mind goes, it's just, it, it, you can see, you can see when someone's going to quit. You can tell. And there's no talking them out of it. So don't even try. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just it. It's, it's, I, you know, I had friends say we had a part of SEAL training called Hell Week, where you're actually awake for five and a half days with no sleep. And um, I had advi- advice before going, don't, don't make any friends before Hell Week because they won't be there on Friday. I think one of my favorite stories was when they had you watch Shark Week. Um, for like two hours straight and then said, all right, fellas, time to get on the bus. We're getting in the water. That is exactly what they do. So we get to train on San Clemente Island, which is uh, right up the coast of California. And in between San Clemente Island and San Catalina is a great white shark breeding ground. Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you don't know anything about sharks, you're not in danger. But Jaws messed it up for everybody. So a kid from Montana who's only been in the ocean for the past few months they sent us out to Sacramento Island, and their thing – so SEAL training is in San Diego, on Coronado, right by the Hotel Del Coronado. Right. And it's some of the most beautiful beaches in the world, and we're still getting tortured there in front of you know, guests at the hotel. But the thing at Sacramento Island is it's just us out there, and nobody can hear you scream. And it's 40 straight days, but the first thing to do, you get there at night. You know it's on a great white breeding ground. You, uh, you don't even unload your bag. You just set them down, walk into the classroom. They play about an hour of highlights of Shark Week. And then we did what's called a shark appreciation swim. So that's where you swim out. To, there's a half-mile buoy right in this bay where we know there's sharks. So you swim out there and you swim back. And most of the swims in SEAL training are like a competition. This one, we're like, it's, you know, strength in numbers. Everyone trying to be in this big blob of SEALs wannabe students swimming out to the middle of the ocean. Well, and they call you seals, and having watched Shark Week, they actually like seals. But there's never been a shark attack, right? Or nobody's died by getting no. bit by a shark. There's never been a shark attack, and that's that says something about great white sharks. They migrate up and down from uh, 
I live in Guadalupe and Mexico up to Oregon and maybe Washington. And that's where we swim all the time since 1962. No one's ever been touched. And that says something about a great white shark. We're not on the menu. Um, and I really believe if you get bitten by a shark, you did something to screw up. That is interesting. That is interesting. What, but you, you, how did you transform yourself? I mean, from Montana, you weren't exactly out swimming laps saying, no. hey, come on, you know, it's July. Let's get in the water and go swim a mile. I knew how to survive in the water, but I didn't know any strokes at all. I didn't know any technique whatsoever. And um, I just, uh, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you have a, I was fortunate to have a swim buddy, which means someone, well, everyone has a swim buddy, but mine was a really good swimmer. So I just kind of had to stay with him and it's a side stroke. So all you pretty much all you have to do is, is fin. So it's just, um, you know, strong hip flexors, strong ankles and kick and, you know, swim a mile that way, swim a mile this way. Um, and it's just, I thought that was going to be the reason I didn't make it through. I'd failed too many swims. They kicked me out, but I, I happened to pass each one by um, a minute or two. There's three phases. And the first swim is, I don't know, they'll say, we'll say 80 minutes. And then the next phase is 75 and then it's 70. So the times are decreasing as you're, the more you swim. So, but yeah, I was, you know, fortunate, just mindset one swim at a time. That's interesting. And, and so you get to the point where you actually, you're graduating. You're, you, you know, at this point, Hey, look, I've made it. And, and then talk to me a little bit about how difficult it is. And it's difficult with families because these missions that you're going on, it's not like you can write back or call up your dad and say, and I know how close you are to your dad. It's hard to not talk about what you're doing and then yet be gone for such long periods of time. If you kind of had to average it out or maybe take the longest time that you were away, say, hey, I got to go and I'll be back when I'm back. What, what does that picture look like? Um, we were lucky enough to only have to go like one of those famous, we're going now type missions a couple of times. Generally they were, um, we would have like a scheduled deployments and from overseas, we would do missions based out of, out of where we were. But right. when we're doing like, let's say at the height of the war for me at SEAL team six, we were doing uh, four months in combat, four months training for combat, four months, something else, four months in combat. And when, so when you're in combat, that's eight months, you know, you're gone. And then when you're home, it's not like you're just home to your training. So you're traveling to Arizona to skydive, you're going to Florida to scuba dive, all this stuff. And then you're going overseas again. So it was, you know, 300 plus days, 330 days a year away from home, away from my kids. And it's just, you kind of get used to it. It just sucks, but you know, you have to do it. Um, it's, it's tough on the families. Yeah. I, I don't think there's enough appreciation from the public about not just the ones that are out there serving, but it's their families they leave behind. And I tell this story a lot about how I met these Marines when I was in Congress. I was in Afghanistan. I pulled them aside and I, you know, said, guys, just tell me what's really going on. And when they finally loosened up, the guy kind of lost it a little bit and kind of broke down, you know, got tears in his eyes because, you know, he couldn't find somebody to help mow the lawn uh, there at his house and his wife was really struggling when he was gone. And he worried more about that than anything else. And it, it just made me realize and recognize how real that those deployments are, whether we're in war or you're in training, you're still away. And that's hard on American families. It is too. And, and think about, I think about the, the people who don't have a platform. I'm able to talk about veterans issues, special operations, stuff like that. But think about the Marines and the soldiers that went on a 15 month deployment and they're walking through minefields every day, uh, you know, just thinking about their families back home. Uh, the sailors out there, sailors on ships work their butts off uh, in the, the hot uh, machine room, you know, the machinist mates or, or the quartermasters up there guiding the ship to the, 
the people, God bless them, working in the chow hall because that's a nonstop uh, operation. They're away from their families, too, for long, long periods of time. Yeah. And then when they get home, I know part of what you're involved with is this um, this foundation that helps retrain, if you will, these warriors and get them back into the uh, you know the business community so they can go on and have lasting careers that are satisfying. But you know, a lot of you, I, I would guess, uh, people like you, they have a hard time because they miss the adrenaline rush. They they miss the importance of what they're doing. It is they they do. Um... But the, the biggest problem they have is they don't realize how good they are at stuff that that a lot of people, a lot of employers really want to hire veterans, spe- especially special operators, because w- one CEO said to me, I'd much rather get um, a Green Beret who I can teach this job, you know, who has combat experience, knows how to work with a team than some dude from a university who just got his gender studies degree. <laughs> Exactly. That's been said to me. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, you have somebody who can overcome any obstacle and is not going to take no for an answer. I mean, that's just bred into them. I, I would think that we would do more to to hire those types of people. And even the people that just, you know, they're working in maintenance, they're working in food services. I mean, all of the logistics that take care of things, these people know how to get things done because if they don't, it is not a... Uh, so we say a nice situation. So, um... oh, that's <laughs> yeah, the, well, veterans. Yeah, I started a, uh, my foundation is called Special Operators Transition Foundation. And um, that's available at my website, robertjoneal.com. But if you just Google that. But uh, yeah, what a lot of these veterans, they don't realize that they have this, the communication skills, effective communication, work as a team, manage stress really, really well. And the biggest thing that veterans do so well, they know how to solve a problem because right. We mentioned a few minutes ago the first day somewhere where you're just scared to death at boot camp. You need to learn to ask questions when you don't understand. And like, if you don't under, one of my favorite answers is because no one wants to raise their hand in a classroom because I don't want to be that guy. I'll raise my hand and say, I didn't understand that. And they'll say, What didn't you understand? I'm like, All of it. I didn't understand (laughs) one word of what you just said to me. But they'll show up, (laughs) but they'll show up, ask questions. And then let's just figure it out. Uh, nobody wants to play the victim here. Let's figure out a solution. And usually the simplest solution is the best option with the realization that once you plan something, it's not going to go that way either. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Rob O'Neill right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Let's talk a little bit about when this podcast airs, 9-11, you know, we'll be recognizing what happened on 9-11. Where were you, Rob, when those planes hit those towers and the Pentagon and and uh, that plane went down, you know, over Pennsylvania with those heroic effort of those passengers who got on that plane this in the morning and had no idea that what they were going to have to deal with. What were you doing and what was the impact on you personally? I was at SEAL Team 2. And SEAL team, every SEAL team has a, what we, before 9-11, had what we called an area of operation. Mm-hmm. Um, SEAL team two happened to be Europe, North Africa. And the, the, the biggest mission in the SEAL teams at the time was Kosovo. And it wasn't even like we were doing, we weren't doing combat. We were doing more observation for peacekeeping because there was obviously, you know, uh, Kosovo, Bosnia, there was a lot of stuff there in the 90s. But that's what we were doing. And we thought we were, the, you know, hot stuff. So we flew back from that deployment to Stuttgart, Germany, where we have a special warfare unit for deployed 
guys overseas. We were simply retweaking our gear in case we go to Kosovo again. And I, I was in the operations center typing emails, watching the news. And uh, I heard behind me on TV that a plane had just hit uh, one of the towers in New York. And I, we were all looking at it. There's a couple SEALs in the room. We're looking at it. And they're saying, yeah, it's a small plane uh, hit the tower. And we're like, that's a big tower. And that's a huge hole. That, you know, that was, um, that was something else. And we're watching it, you know, obviously till just after nine o'clock and the, uh, the other plane hit the South Tower. And we all knew instantly we're at war. And it wasn't, it wasn't um, 15 seconds, maybe, in that operations center in Germany that someone said the name Osama bin Laden. I'm like, this is Al-Qaeda. We are at war now. And that's it. We knew, we knew everything changed. We, we're done in Europe. We're all either going to Sudan or Afghanistan. And we're gonna, now we need to beat these guys. But you knew. You knew it was bin Laden. We knew it was Al-Qaeda for sure. And then we knew the head of uh, Al-Qaeda was Osama bin Laden. And he you know, declared a fatwa on the United States um, in the early 90s. Nobody paid attention to it, not even after the USS Cole. But yeah, we knew, we knew it was bin Laden. It's a question of where is he? So your, your life's changing. Tell us about were things just sped up? Were you, I mean, was it just a flurry? I mean, what was obviously it caught America off guard and there was a flurry of activity. Everybody wanted to, to take out the threat and to have some retribution for what was happening. But how did your life change? What was going on with you? Well, like I said, everything changed and nobody knew who was going where. So we're getting ready to go to combat. Uh, my, that deployment I was on was going to end in a month. So we went, you know, we're going to go back to the United States. But, but are we now? Or are we just going to go right into Africa? We didn't know. And it's just, it, everything spun up. They ended up sending us back. And then we're going through training again for the uh, you know, trip overseas. Guys that went overseas and actually started fighting Al-Qaeda came back and just completely changed our tactics. So like, okay, everything we've been doing for the past 20 years is wrong. Here's how we do it now because real bullets are flying at guys and people are dying. Uh, so, I mean, everything completely changed at first, just the unknown. But then, you know, once we started um, realizing the mission, it, it, it got better. And especially when I got to SEAL Team 6, I was just working with some of the best guys in the world. I learned from the best. I learned stuff by watching dudes and thinking, man, that guy's cool. I want to be cool. What do you think you did better than probably most? Tell us about that. You write about that in the book. Um, I, you know, I never thought I was better than anyone. What made our place unique is we got to go to work every day with people who were better than us and just learning from each other. Um, I, you know, what I did is I just didn't, um, I never stopped making myself available. I didn't take breaks. Um, like, you know, nothing against taking breaks from combat, but I always, I was always there and, uh, right place, right time. I'm, uh, my wife calls me the, the luckiest unlucky man in the world. You know, like I can, I can trip over something, but I'll land in a million dollars. Well, I mean, that's what's fascinating about the operator, the book, because you talk not, uh, you know, Captain Phillips, but you also talk about that incredible firefight that you got into where you were right there on the border and all hell breaks loose because, I, I, I mean, it's just an absolute amazing thing. And your backpack's over there, and so you got to sprint over there, and you make it. Like That's just unbelievable that you could go all the way back to get your backpack and then come all the way back. I didn't have a choice. Um, what had happened, again, like I was saying, I have something now that I learned the hard way, like this mission, is the only time the perfect plan exists is in the planning room. Right. Once you go out there, anything can change. But I had a perfect plan with my very small team of Americans, uh, two other SEALs and two uh, – 
army SF guys and a couple Afghanis. And we were going to go, we were going to insert and then walk to the top of the mountain right on the border of Pakistan. So this is in Konar province. These are serious mountains. And our plan was we want them to see us and shoot at us. And if they do, we can pursue them in because we know they're hiding there. That's the plan. And maybe it'll be seven guys. Well, it turned into a few hundreds. And we're, we're just like, we need, we need to leave now because the sun's up. It's noon. We don't have cover of darkness. We're running down the hill before they see us. But um, we, they caught us. And we ended up, long story short, in this huge, bad ambush. They're on top of us. And, and we're in this, in this valley almost. And I had heard from guys older than me, never heard of anyone doing it, that if you need to run, you can take off your backpack. We wore our gear in a certain type of way. But the first thing you can throw off is your backpack. And that's normally your least important stuff. So like if you have a sleeping bag, it's in there, foot powder, extra socks, whatever. You can just ditch that stuff. So I had to ditch it to run to my radio guy across this field uh, in order to tell him where I wanted the first bombs to drop. He's carrying the radio. Uh, and I went over to him. I was kind of pointing everything out. And he said, well, that's fine, but we don't have any air support. And uh, it took a long time for some reason to get these, these, these um, close air support jets over us. And by the time he got one, they were so close to us, uh, they being Al-Qaeda and Taliban, that it, the, the scariest part is not getting shot at and hearing stuff zip past your head. It's hearing them yell at you. Like we, we can legitimately hear Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And if you got dudes saying God is greater in Arabic, you are fighting some serious dudes. Uh, so anyway, long story again. He finally got a jet and said, um, I got a jet, but the, my, the batteries are dead in my radio. And I'm not a big believer in micromanaging, but I thought now is the time to do so. And I said, change the batteries. And that seems simple. Good advice. Said, I can't. I think he said, I can't. I don't have the spares. Remember, you have them. You're carrying them. And now they're in my backpack that I dropped 100 meters away. So I had to, you know, something on, along the lines of, don't tell my mom I did this. I had to run across the field, grab the batteries, run back, and he put them in. And then we finally got in touch with the pilot. And the pilot, here's how cool. I, I can't say uh, enough good about pilots, but he was so cool. There's a lot going on when we need to call in close air support. And we've been under fire for a little over an hour. So the pilot knew that we were under duress. And so he needed to calm us down. Because like I said, mindset is everything. The first thing the pilot said was, um, just talk to me like I'm a man. And my response to him was, I see why women find you attractive. <laughs> <laughs> but that was enough to calm us down. And we ended up uh, bombing those guys. They did run back into, um, into Pakistan, but we were able to bomb them inside of Pakistan based on proper rules of engagement. So it turned into a, what we call an international incident. And even leaving, was, I was all happy. Um, well, you know, we're going to live. The helicopters eventually got us. They pulled us out. And I'm going through my, my mental checklist. I'm like, wow, we just bombed Pakistan. I'm in charge. That's an international incident. I am probably going to hear about this. <laughs> Might be called in. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, we heard about it. There was, there was an investigation. Well, and you know, that, that that's part of the process you need to go through, but um, it also prevents more attacks from happening, and there is supposed to be a border there, so... Yeah, that's true. I mean, and I was fortunate, too, because um, a lot of these investigations, as you, as you know, when you start working at higher levels of, of the deep states, um, they might do something to send you to Leavenworth for murder, and they didn't. They were good, but...
but because we had footage of it. But whenever I hear the word investigation, I'm like, okay, what? Not, not only did what I do wrong, but what am I about to be caught having done? Well, I mean, this is but one of a whole lot of stories that that show up in the operator that are just absolutely fascinating. Going back to 9-11, which is one of, if not the most terrific event to, to happen here on our homeland. I mean, you're seeing it from Stuttgart. You, you, you recognize you're a patriot, love the country. You recognize the world has changed, that we're under attack. But when did it really get sort of personal for Rob O'Neill? Like, when did it when did it really touch your heart and say, you know, like, when did it become just personal for you? It, it became personal within seconds of the attack, watching people jump uh, out of the towers. Right. Because what is going on inside that makes it that the better option? So that made it personal. And then, and I'll get into this when we get into the Bin Laden raid, um, finding out about um, the, um, the first Americans to fight Al-Qaeda were the passengers on Flight 93 that yeah. crashed into Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And because they they had known now we're, our nation's under attack and we're you know we're on a one way mission now we need to stop this plane and the, what hit me most about Flight 93 is that they voted. That's America. They voted to fight and they fought and they saved the capital. Yeah, you know I hadn't actually thought about it like that, but you know to hear them huddled back there and then to say. What are we going to do and not do? And then let's roll. I mean, I, I can. Yeah. Let's I, and even think about the outside the box thinking, okay, they, we think they have bombs. We know they have knives. What can we do? They, like the, they boiled water. That's a weapon. You have weapons yeah. around you. That's so cool. I mean, it's obviously the most scary out of body experience. I'm sure they had, but boy, they did it. And it's incredible. And so that's yeah. when it became very personal. These are, these are real people with real families really fighting a, a real enemy. Yeah, and it look they they woke up in the morning. They're getting on an airplane. They're inspired by ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things when they had no idea that they were going to be put in that situation, and then they deal with it. And they, you know, the the consequence was dire to say the least. It, they lost their lives, but they saved countless others. And that it, it really is inspirational to me. It's sad at the same time, and I do hope we as a nation we never ever forget that. I hope so too, and I'm—I mean, I'm—I have a positive attitude about it because, uh, as you know, the country is not um, the Beltway and Manhattan and Hollywood. The country right. is in between there, and most Americans will do that. Like mo <clears throat> Americans will help each other. Americans will run into a fire. Americans will—you know—they'll do that for each other. Most Americans are great. We just—it's the loudest voices get the most ratings. But I think Babe Ruth said something. We need to remember: the loudest voices come from the cheapest seats. <laughs> something like that. The loudest booze come from the cheapest seats. Sorry, I get excitable. I, I screw it up sometimes. No, no, I like. I gotta have to quote that. I, I'm gonna. That, that's you're right. That is a great quote. So, tell us about. So the fighting's been going on. The intelligence has been trying to to you know be put into place. But all of a sudden, you get a call or a back then or pagers, right? And yeah, we we were. How did that go pagers. down? Remind me how that went down. Where you got called into this to be part of this team and this mission? We use pagers all the time. Uh, and, and for everything from, um, you know, get into work now type stuff, we use pagers on the Captain Phillips raid with the, when they called us in Virginia Beach. That, we use those. The Captain Phillips was one, this, and this, there's more to this cool story than people think about. Because, uh, I, again, I always mention that there's never a perfect plan, but you need to be prepared. 
Right. It's like, you know, have that bolt bag. The one you talked about, you brought to Benghazi, like you got the bag with you in case I got to run type stuff. Right. Be prepared, have the water in your, in your uh, garage, all that good stuff. But we, um, we got the call. It was Good Friday, April 10th, which, uh, which is my birthday in 2009. And I was at my daughter's Easter tea party at her preschool. And she was four. And I was getting her treats uh, for Easter to bring them back. I had a pink plate in my hand covered with smiley face cookies. And as I'm handing it to her, I got a message. And that's when I learned that Captain Richard Phillips had been taken by Somali pirates. And they called my team to get him now. Um, from a preschool classroom in Virginia Beach on my birthday and a long weekend, Right. We, meaning the entire team, 15 hours and 46 minutes later, we're in the Indian Ocean with a full head count. And then we rescued Richard Phillips uh, on Easter. That's how quick it was. If you're not familiar with the mission, there was a Navy destroyer towing that fully engulfed lifeboat. And we put snipers on the rear of that boat just to watch them, make sure nothing unsafe happened as the team was preparing to rescue. But as we we're preparing to rescue something unsafe happened and the snipers took the shots, killed three pirates at the same time and rescued Richard Phillips. But what people don't realize, if you put the humanization of it, those three snipers were in their own beds in Virginia four days before their shots on a long weekend. And SEAL Team 6 had never done this mission. Over 25 years, it had never been done. So you can imagine their mindset. You know, we have a long weekend. We've never done this. I don't need to have my gun sighted in for the most difficult shot I'll ever take in my life. I can do that on Tuesday. But they didn't. And the guns were ready and they shot. Like that was the biggest mission at the time in the history of the SEAL teams. Wow. That was amazing. Look, uh, it, it, you're recounting all the jumps that you've had in your life and, uh, you know, uh, out of airplanes. And I, that that was amazing to me, the coordination and the the difficulty of having to lead that, uh, that was amazing. It was because that's the first time. I mean, we trained on it a lot. And I, so I was a lead jumper, which means first guy out. And then I try to get the entire stack together, meaning a long line of canopies, parachutes, but we'd only done it in training. So there were safety boats, uh, all over us below. As we jump, pull the canopy, look down, you'll see safety boats. And then you can find your target out here. There was no safety boats. There was really no target. I had to find the boats that we just pushed out. And it was difficult to look down at the ocean and find it, but you know, we made it happen. And the good news is I had about a hundred guys with me who were capable of finding them too. So that's a lot of, um, you know, backfill, but yeah, we found them. We landed on the boats. We took those boats to a big Navy ship and we came up with plans. We just, everyone come up with a plan and we'll decide on the best. And as we were planning, the snipers took the opportunity to shoot. Well, no, there's a whole lot of talent that goes behind that. I, you know, when I was in Congress, people always complained about, oh, the military, this and military, that, you know what, we got to have the biggest, baddest military on the face of the planet. So when we go out and spend the money and do the training and do all that, that is always money well spent because then all of a sudden you got to use it and you better be out in front you better have the best people with the best talent, the best equipment. So when you need them, it's just the whole thing, you know, about a gun, I'd rather have it, not need it than need it and not have it. And, right. and especially at this point in time, we, we really need to be concerned about larger militaries. And I mean, China, because as you know, they're over there trying to make, now that we've ditched Bagram airfield, Afghanistan, they're trying to make a, a route trains and, and pavement to the sea right there so they can have access to Europe uh, right there for trade. And then they're, they're trying to buy land right now in West Africa so they can have a naval fleet in the Atlantic. That's scary. And we're back here in our Navy trying to decide who gets to use which bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the truth though. All right. 
we could do a whole nother podcast on just that topic uh, and uh, China and everything else. All right, let, let's go back to so getting the call for you know on your birthday, daughter, the whole bit. I mean, that really is kind of almost straight out of the movies. But this mission to go out and take out Osama bin Laden with the intelligence that was coming in, it wasn't always for sure, but. You you had somebody there who, who we all relied on, and she was convinced that this was actually the right target, the right place, that he was there, you know, without giving away any secret or classified stuff. How did you get that call, and how quickly did you have to spin that up and put that together? That, that was a call. They, they did a really good job. That, that was the one mission that, like, the stuff you see in the movies was accurate. The stuff, the way you think how productive the CIA and the government and the White House can be. They actually were. Um, no one knew about this. You know, none of us. So, so we were all on training trips. Like I mentioned, we'll go to war, we'll come back and train. I was on a training trip in Miami with my team. There were other guys out in Arizona or, and, and Nevada, you know, rock climbing, all that stuff. And the senior guys got called back to Virginia. And this was way out of the ordinary. We're supposed to be on training trips. And they pulled us in a room and, and said, just 28 of us total. And um, the way that it was presented was we found a thing. And this thing is in a house. And this house is in a bowl in between these mountains in a country. And you guys are going to go to this house. You're going to get this thing and bring it back and show it to us. And so we asked, you know, what's the thing? Well, we can't tell you. Okay, where's the bowl? Can't tell you. What country? Can't tell you. How are we getting there? Can't tell you. And, and that started off like that. And we, you know, we assumed because the Arab Spring had just started in North Africa and Tunisia and then spilled over into Egypt and Libya, we assumed they found Gaddafi and they wanted us to go get him. So we're mm. going to fly off a flat top on some ospreys. They didn't want to, whatever. That's what we're assuming. But what caught our, our ears was they said we were not bringing any Air Force with us. And so our Air Force special operators are pararescue men who are, are basically field surgeons and then, and then the communicators, the CCT guys. So, but we're not bringing them because they're trying to save weight, which something's weird because we, we, we need our communicators. So we're all fixing our gear for this and blah, blah, blah. They, on a Friday, they said, go home, be with your kids, and then come back Sunday. We're going to drive you somewhere, and we're going to read you in. And we did that. And, but as we're, you know, we're thinking about they're mentioning who's going to be at the read-in, and it didn't make sense. One thing they said was uh, the Pakistan-Afghanistan desk from an, one of the three-letter agencies. And we're thinking, if, if they're going to be there, why? It, this can't be Libya. So then it started to click. And I, as we're driving to this place, my boss was next to me. And I said, I think they found Osama bin Laden. He said, that's exactly what I was thinking. And we got to that uh, room. They locked the doors. And, and the commanding officer came in and said, gentlemen, the reason you're here is because this is as close as we've ever been to Osama bin Laden. And it's real. And, you know, there was no high-fiving. We're just like, okay, cool. Are we going now? And they said, no, we're going to tell you about it. And that's where we met her, the woman who found Bin Laden. And she's real. And she told us about it. She was the first one I heard say Abbottabad. And I've never heard that word before. It's in Pakistan. This is a serious mission. And so we knew what we were doing. They did want us to train up. But, you know, we would train hour after hour, all morning, all afternoon, all evening. And then we'd get back to the house and we would look at a model and talk about it over and over and over. And every night we finished training, she would say, Osama Bin Laden is in the third floor of this house right now. I don't understand why we're not going to get him. And she just knew. <laughs> the The movie depiction was, I, I mean, how, how is she different than the movie depiction? 
I mean, she's not a redhead and she's, but she's that cool. And she's that, uh, you know, sharp and and she'll get right to the point. She'll tell you why Uh, the word awesome doesn't describe her. Well, she helped change the world in a better, in a better way for her tenacity and her smarts and everything else. And her obviously willing to stand up and say, this is right, folks. And I recognize that I have, I don't have the seniority that you all have, but I know what I'm talking about. And this is right. She, yeah. Yeah. She knew it. She, she knew it. Um, I mean, to the day we left, I ran into her. We were on our way to get on the bus to take us to the helicopter to fly to the bus house. I ran into her. I was in my gear and she's out there pacing. And this is after weeks of training that she's seen us. So we knew her pretty well. And I said, why are you nervous? And she looked at me and goes, are you kidding me? Why aren't you nervous? Yeah. I said, well, you know, I do, this, I do this every night. I get in a helicopter, we fly somewhere, we do some stuff, we fly home. And I looked at her and I said, however, this one's on a global scale and you need to be right. So you can be nervous. I'll see you in a few hours. So, <laughs> Rob, this is a one-way mission. This is... Yeah. We mentioned, we mentioned the kids. Um, you know, the, the hardest part of going to combat is kissing your kids goodbye. Like, the realization this could be it. Uh, that's the hardest part. And this one, we knew we were going to die. And I, I had my one, well, there's one daughter in particular. I remember writing a note to, she was seven at the time, but I wrote, I didn't write a letter to the seven-year-old. I wrote it to the 27-year-old, you know, read it when you're 27. I'm really sorry. I missed your wedding. I know you're beautiful. Thanks for taking care of your sister. You know, what we did was noble, things like that. Tears hitting the page. Um, and the reason we knew it was a one-way mission was because uh, we're, we're going over the border of, into Pakistan. It's not a third world country. They have air defense. Um, we don't know if our technology works, so we can get shot down at any moment. Then when we get there, there will be a gunfight as soon as we get there. Then when we get inside, if anybody is going to blow himself up and kill his whole family and us as we're in the building, it's him. Or we're going to run out of fuel and either die fighting the Pakistanis or die shortly after if we surrender in a prison. So we were so convinced we weren't coming home. One of the guys on the mission said, um, if, just I got to say it out loud, even I'm going 100%. I just got to say it out loud. If we know we're going to die, why are we going? And which is fair. And again, we, the reason we're going is not for ourselves and we're not going for fame. We're going after Osama bin Laden for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday. And then 45 minutes later, she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper because that's the better alternative. She was never supposed to be in the fight. We're supposed to be in the fight. And that's why we're going. Hmm. What was, uh, again, you got to be careful with classified information, but ultimately what was different in the mission than you really anticipated? The difference was the access that we had to stuff that wasn't approved for a better word. Like they, anything that someone was, you know, in the smart part of a basement somewhere tinkering with something, um, we had access to it if we wanted to bring it. Well, um, hmm. what, a funny story we have, was um, this, I mentioned earlier, we're not bringing certain people just because of weight. And like, I didn't carry a pistol. We're, t- you know, ounces equal pounds. And this guy came in with this thing, this box that weighed 50 pounds. He said, this is a box and it jams everything. It jams every kind of communications, all electronics, it jams, blah, blah, blah. He's telling us, and he goes, and the radius is 300 yards. And one of my buddies said, okay, have you ever tested it in a helicopter? And he said, No. <laughs> But he goes, I have a better idea since I weigh so much. Can you design something uh, that only weighs 40 pounds and the radius is this room and it jams really bad ideas? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, you thought oh, oh, Bin Laden was going to blow himself up, but he didn't. 
and you thought there'd be more of a firefight with resistance, but it didn't seem like there was. I mean, that just goes to show you he's being protected by the Pakistanis. That's just what they're doing. And they have, um, you know, that part of the world, they have reason to do that. Like if they hide bin Laden, then Al-Qaeda won't attack them or whatever. And it wasn't, the you know, all the military that knew, but it was their intelligence services. So I think that he knew if he kept a low signature um, and, and did the kind of, uh, you know, they had really good operational security, that he could hide there for a while and then they'll just move him again. So he just, he wasn't expecting it. And so when that helicopter um, crashes, I mean, what's the mindset there? I mean, you're trained to just stay focused on the mission, but things had to be running through your head. Like, this is not going the way we had planned it to go. We we talked about that for maybe 30 seconds out of the two weeks we trained because someone said, what's the worst thing that could happen? And one of the guys goes, helicopter could crash in the front yard. And we all kind of looked at him like, why, why would you say that? You're totally jinxing us. Um, but he said, let's talk about that. And so we did. I was in the other one. Um, I, didn't, I didn't even know the helicopter crashed. I had no idea. Um, because my helicopter was the second one coming in. And we were going to drop some snipers and, and a dog and an interpreter on the north side outside. And then put my team on top of the, the building Bin Laden was in, the three-story building. But as we did that, our helicopter was going up and the pilot realized the other one couldn't hover, so he can't either. So he just dropped us off outside as if to shoo us out. And I remember putting a foot on the ground thinking, well, I guess we start the war from here. Something happened. I don't know what. I didn't know the helicopter crash. Uh, we tried to uh, blow up one of the uh, double doors off to our left because we knew we could get in the yard. It opened like a tin can, but there's a brick wall behind it. And like one of the guys said, failed breach, this is bad. And I was thinking, no, this is good. That's a fake door. Nobody does that. Then we told the other crew that we're going to blow up the main door, which is like a, a carport to drive cars in and out. And someone just said, no, don't blow it up. We'll just open it. And the door opened and the thumb came out that I recognized. I didn't know they crashed at this point, but a good rule for life is it doesn't matter how we got to this point. We're just here. We'll talk about it later. So I went in the house, not realizing that they crashed until someone inside the house told them. So the pilot saved everyone's lives on that, on that uh, helicopter. He crashed, landed it, realizing if he could pin it against the wall, it wouldn't roll. But if he tried to power up, it would. And he made that decision in the blink of an eye and saved everyone's lives and saved the mission. Wow. The pilots do not get enough credit, I tell you. And they, no. What they do and how they do it at night, in the dark, wind, I, I mean, in a mission like this, those guys are absolutely amazing. <laughs> They are. They're the best. We were fortunate to have the, the best pilots in the world on that mission. And not just in R2, but in the ones behind us, too. They had the best pilots that the, our U.S. Army has, and, and they're just, they are the best pilots I've, you can imagine. Well, and you know, the other thing that I was amazed at, and again, look, I know nothing compared to what you, you've been through and seen and know. But I got to tell you that the way dogs operate and for our local law enforcement for, uh, you know, bombs. And, it, but it, talk to me a little bit about what canines offer and what they did that night. We brought Cairo with us. If that was his name, he was a Belgian Malinois and the best dog we had. Um, this dog had been with us for a long time. He actually got shot in the chest on a mission and lived <laughs> and then recuperated. And he ended up on the Bin Laden mission. But what, what they do is they're really good at finding stuff and using their noses. They, you know, their noses are better than some of the equipment we have anywhere looking for bombs, anything. You know, they got, they got COVID dogs now. Um, so Cairo's job was to do a sweep around the, um, around the perimeter, make sure no one escaped through a tunnel. And if they did, obviously the dogs, you can, they can give chase and they can run and grab them. 
So uh, we brought Kyra with us for that reason there. But I've been in combat before where dogs um, have opened doors I couldn't see. <laughs> like, they just like, and then went in and cleared them. Um, and, and, you know, when, whenever a dog dies in combat, which unfortunately happens a lot, they probably save four or five soldiers' lives. These dogs are invaluable. There, there's even a, um, there's a memorial where I used to work at SEAL Team 6 for the fallen troops, but in front of it to the right is um, a dog memorial, and that's where the dog would normally be up and to the right. Yeah, we we got to continue to invest in that technology. So, oh yeah, all of a sudden you're there. You finally do breach. You're inside. Can you walk us walk us through? I know you've recounted this, but Rob, uh, that's right. You did that. Yeah. Night. Um, explain to us what went down. Well, I was because they put us outside. The other helicopter had gotten their guys out, and they're in they're in the fight in different buildings, and they're already ahead of me in the lines. Um, the first floor of Bin Laden's house. And so I, I came in the, the front door, which led to a hallway. And there's already Navy SEALs up ahead of me, clearing rooms and working, breaching problems. And I kind of backed into a room and I'm, I'm like shining my invisible light, but I can see it looking for bombs, like hanging from the ceiling. Just, you know, if they're going to blow the house up, that's what they're going to do it. But then I would watch my guys work and they knew the house would blow up. And I just remember being proud of these guys. Like we could die at any moment and we might but look at them. No one's afraid. No one's stopping. Everyone is, you know, working the way we work. Slow is smooth. Then smooth is fast. If you want to be fast, slow down type stuff. And they're just working the problems. So we're in a hallway, but the, the woman that found Bin Laden said, I don't know where it is, but you will find a stairwell. And obviously it goes up. And in between the first and second floor, you will run into Khalid Bin Laden, who is um, the 20 year old son. And she said, if you can get him, you will get a shot at the big guy. So I was able to make it to that stairwell. There's about seven guys in front of me. Khalid was there and um, he jumped behind a banister and there's two. I remember being behind it, looking up the stairs and thinking, okay, there are two grown men with assault rifles <laughs> separated, you know, by 10 inches in a banister who want to kill each other. I got to see how this goes down. And the point man just really, he mind wrestled him. <laughs> like he, he said something to make him come out and look and ask what, and then he shot him because the guy was armed well within the rules of engagement. And again, just being proud like that. I mean, you know, in a gruesome way, I thought that was really cool. Um, but we get up the stairs. We're on the second floor. And then the guys in front of me all separated to the left and right to clear the rooms on the, on the hallways on the second floor. And now the only guy in front of me is the guy looking up the stairs. And he's called the point man. I turn it. So the number one man, I turn into the number two man. His job is to look forward. My job is to keep a hand on his shoulder and look backwards so I can tell him through a squeeze on his shoulder when we have enough guys. And that's just effective communication without talking. But he's looking up the stairs, and instead of a, a, at the top of the stairs, instead of a door, there's a curtain. And there's, we can see some backlight, people moving. And the point man assumed those are the suicide bombers, and they're getting ready, but we can beat them if we go now. We've got to go right now. Um, so I had a hand on his shoulder. He didn't know it was me. He obviously knew it was one of his guys, but he started telling me, we got to go, we got to go. And I remember it, I, it wasn't bravery for me. It was more of, okay, we're going to blow up now. And I'm just tired of thinking about it. Let's get it over with. And I squeezed him and two of us went up the stairs and uh, he moved the curtain and he kind of tackled these people he thought were bombers, which says a lot about his character because he's willing to absorb the blast of the guy behind him which is me can get the shot. So he went this way straight. So that meant I turned right to cover his back. And then I'm staring at Osama bin Laden. He's three feet away, uh, standing there with his hands on his wife, Amal's shoulders and sort of maneuvering her. Um, he wasn't surrendering. 
and and he's he's a high high threat. He's got to have a suicide vest. I remember thinking he's taller than I thought. He's skinnier. That's his beard is gray, but that's his nose. That's him. I've seen that face. He's a threat. I need to treat him as a suicide bomber. And that's when I shot him in the face twice and then shot him again on the ground. And it was over so quick that I moved his now his wife right next to me, and you can sort of just feel who a threat is and not, and she's not. So I pushed her back to the you know I killed the line at the foot of his bed, then I pushed her on the bed to sit down because I know other Navy SEALs are coming in, which they did. I did see now standing there too was his two-year-old son. And as a father, I remember thinking, this kid's got nothing to do with this. It sucks that he's here. And I picked him up and then I put him down and then it it sort of started to sink in. And I'm thinking, is that the best thing I've ever done or the worst thing I've ever done? I'm sort of standing there processing this. (laughs) One of my friends came up to me, he's in the room now and he, he said, are you good? And I said, um, I don't know what, uh, what are we supposed to do now? And he smiled. He's looking at me and he goes, now we find the computers. We find the intelligence. We do this every night, hundreds of times. And I said, yeah, you're right. That's what we do. I'm back. Oh my God. And he said, yeah, you just killed Osama bin Laden. Your life just changed. Now let's get to work. Hmm. So talk about that extraction because that is the treasure trove of intelligence that can take down the whole network, but you're on the clock. We are, and we, we wanted the entire time to be there 34 minutes on the ground and leave, but obviously we had to blow up a helicopter. There's so much intelligence in there. We're trying to carry as much as we can, and we need to call another another helicopter to come get us, um, which it did. So we got him about 47 minutes. He's outside this big Chinook. There's other Navy SEALs on the Chinook, which I think is awesome when you think about on the Bin Laden raid, SEAL Team 6 rescued SEAL Team 6, which is just cool, and they don't get enough credit either. But um, we got on that. We put Bin Laden's body on our original helicopter and had the first team go with him. We got on the Chinook and then we left. And there was even a guy outside tweeting. And you can still see his tweets about, uh, I can't believe Pakistan is, is uh, doing an exercise this late on a Sunday or something like that. And I saw this guy tweeting. And I, I remember thinking, in a war zone, if someone's outside of the target with a phone in their face, you can shoot them because they might be blowing up a, a car bomb. But this guy, we're not in a combat zone. This guy's tweeting. And I remember thinking, they have no idea that we're here. So, wow. we, you know, we got in the Chinook and then, then we left. And, and um, we had accepted death on this mission, but we just killed Osama bin Laden. And now, if we can live 90 minutes, if we can fly for 90 minutes and cross the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, 90 minutes and we get 50 more years, I get to see my kids again. We can make it, but we still could get shot down. But me worrying about the missile is not going to stop the missile. And that's advice for life. If, if there's something going on that your worry is not going to help, stop wasting the energy. Just put that bag of bricks down. So I just started my watch, and we're flying to the border. And I'm just, you know, trying to think, trying to be calm. And you look down, it's like, all right, it's been 10 minutes. Now it's been 20 minutes. Okay, it's been 30 minutes. Now we've been flying for 40 minutes, then 50 minutes. And it starts to sink in. We got to get to 90 minutes. And it's like watching that no-hitter at the top of um, – top of the seventh, you know, Fenway or whatever. It's like, um, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to jinx it, but it's been 60 minutes. And now it's been 70 minutes. Now it's been 80 minutes and we got to get to 90. And my speech and my thinking starts to get faster and faster. Love sports analogies because the whole team thing, it reminds me of when Team USA hockey beat the Russians in Lake Placid. And if you watch the replay, you can hear 10, 9, 8. We're nervous. We can still screw this up. Five. Four, and then the pilot came over the radio at about 85 minutes. And again, pilots are so cool. Very calmly said, all right, gentlemen, for the first time in your lives, you're going to be happy to hear this. 
welcome to Afghanistan. And it's just like, it, it hits. It's like, wow, we did it. We got it. The, those uh, 80, 90 <clears throat> minutes in the air, was it, was it just calm? Do you have to be quiet? Yeah. I mean, we're in a, we're in a Chinook. It's loud. It's a, it's a flying school bus. that sounds like a, some kind of an animal. <laughs> so it's, right. I mean, but there's no point. You can't, you can't really talk. You can kind of look at each other and, you know, everyone trying to be cooler than the next. Like I'm not, like I'm not staring at my watch, but you know, it's like when you're working out, I'm not going to count it, but it, you know, five minutes has went by. So we're just all sitting there and there's dudes that, like, there was a dude sitting next to me on the squadron that rescued us. And he's from Manhattan. His name's Rob also. And he, you know, he asked me, uh, this is again, one of those moments where it sort of sinks in. He goes, you know, being from lower Manhattan, he said, uh, who got him? And I said, I did. And he said, on behalf of my family, thank you. And it's sort of like, wow. He just said, thank you. This is huge. And, and uh, just be calm. And even if you're not like, this is good advice for leaders. Um, even if you're not calm, no one can tell. So just act calm. Because if you, if you portray calm, it's contagious. But if you panic, that's also contagious. But there had to be a bit of a celebration that you all got back and you got, and you got your man. Well, when we got there, we, uh, we put the body down in Jalalabad. It was not down in Jalalabad. Like we flew it to a hangar in Jalalabad to show it to Admiral McRaven, who was there, to show it to the, uh, the, the woman from the agency that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, yeah, I mean, there was a celebration right there. And, that, you know, it was short-lived, and we had to fly him up the Bagram Airfield where everything was set up with the, the um, law enforcement guys who were going to do the actual um, the DNA test and whatnot. And then we were having breakfast to kind of look at, you know, we're getting, po- it's post-operation stuff. We've done operations. And the gravity hasn't quite sunk in. Like, we know we got the lot. And, and he was laying right there. Like he's Here he is. I remember eating a sandwich. I'm standing at his feet, and they're doing the DNA test. And we actually had Fox News on on this huge uh, flat screen TV. And President Obama walked down that red carpet and said, tonight I can report to the American people and to the world. The United States conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al Qaeda. And I heard President Obama say Osama bin Laden. And I looked down at Osama bin Laden and just thought, how in the world did I get here from Butte, Montana? Wow. And you're eating a tuna fish sandwich. No, no, I was eating, uh, they brought in sausage, egg, and cheese, and we took off the top, so we made an extra thick sausage, egg, and cheese with the uh, hot sauce. <laughs> well, you deserve it, and uh, yeah. Well, thank um, you. Uh, but, but what an incredible moment. So you, uh, it takes a while to get back. It's not like you can get on an airplane and suddenly you're home and, you know, you can say no, we hi did. to your... Oh, did yeah, you we, get home uh, pretty we, quick? Uh, yeah, when we... Um, they were finished with the body. We handed them over to the army who flew them out to uh, a Navy ship to bury them at sea. And then we went over to the CBs, uh, the Navy uh, construction battalion's place because they had showers we could use. And they had a, um, they had uh, an oven <laughs> and the internet. So we went over there to shower. We checked, you know, it was all over the news, the SEAL Team 6 plastered everywhere, which is really weird for us. But when we were done with an, like an hour there and some pizza, we went back over, uh, we got on a, a C-17 and then, um, Flew right back to the states, refueled once in the once or twice in the air, and landed Virginia Beach. So it was twenty four hours. We're back home, and, and there was even um, um, <clears throat> obviously our parents and family and everything knew what happened. And I'd always mess with my mom, uh, even in high school. For some reason, I would always say, "You don't need to worry about me. I'm here to do something special." Uh, going to combat, my mom, you don't need to worry. I'm here to do something special. And I called her. When we got home, I said, okay, mom, you can start worrying about me because that special thing I'm supposed to do, I'm pretty sure it just happened. (laughs) 
Now you you gave to the uh, the memorial there some of the stuff that you were wearing and and um, tell me about meeting some of those families who lost loved ones. I was offered the opportunity to donate something to the 9/11 Memorial Museum, um, which was an honor. So I donated the shirt that I wore into Bin Laden's room with the American flag patch on it uh, mm-hmm. anonymously because I didn't. It's not like hey look at me. It was this shirt was present. Um, when Bin Laden was killed. That's all I wanted to, uh, uh, because of the chronology of the, the way the museum works. And if you haven't seen it, it must see. But um, I didn't know as I donated it that um, they walked me into um, a, a conference room and there was maybe 30 people, all of whom had lost loved ones on 9-11 in the towers and, uh, and the Pentagon and Flight 93. And they kind of, put me on stage and said, tell them what happened. And the first time I'd ever publicly told the story was there. Just the response from people who lost loved ones. Um, they kept saying it was helping with the healing process. There will never be closure, but here, you know, putting a face with a name uh, helps with the healing, which we need. And, and there was a guy there with his grandson and this, the grandson's father, obviously the grandfather's son had died in nine 11. And they always, he, he was telling me a story. He said, my grandson always asked, why did, God do this. And I said, God didn't do this. The devil did this. And you, sir, killed the devil. And just to hear something that powerful, hmm. that, that's what made me decide to try to get my story approved by the Department of Defense, which I did to help. Um, if I can help these 30, I can help thousands of people with the healing process. And I've, I've assumed risk before, and it's, and it's worth it. Hmm. Well, what you did and that whole team, um, and the analysts and the, I mean, the, all the logistics and the, everything that has to come together, Rob, you, you made us proud. And I hope every one of those people that were involved and engaged in that operation, uh, that they know how much America loves them and cares for them. And, you know, and I, I really hope they do. And, and I, I don't know how to convey that other than I hope all Americans do that. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I have a friend, Dakota Meyer, who's a, a Medal of Honor recipient. And one of his best sayings is, "I never want another 9/11, but I'd love another 9/12." Um, and and that's just the way America came together. We're seeing the the um, American flag as a beacon of freedom, and most people, like I said, are like that. I just and I, I they just you know <laughs> they don't get hurt very much, um, but. America's out there. The Patriots is out there. And then, and the, the coalition, you know, our Western partners, just because, just because most of our government sucked doesn't mean the people do. Yeah. What, what else from last question here about nine 11, what do you find most people don't know about that? Like, what do you want them to know? You know, there's a whole younger generation that wasn't watching TV that morning. Wasn't even born. Well, it's the, um, uh, you know, everyone love everyone, global civilization that they're being taught, which is awesome. I believe me, I'd rather have peace than war. But people need to realize it doesn't matter. Again, that there are people out there that want to kill us, not based on our skin color or our gender. It is based on the fact that we don't believe what they believe and they want to kill us and they will try again. The realization that um, this country is great, but it's also a huge target. It's the best, greatest country in the world. It's a target. And as an American you could be targeted, you know, so just the awareness that um, we are the good guys, but someone wants to hurt us. Yeah, there's a great inscription there at the World War II Memorial, and it always struck me because it's a reminder, and I don't, I, I should memorize the quote because I like it so much, but it basically says, uh, we came, we fought, 
uh, we conquered, but we didn't take. They, we didn't go and acquire oh. more land. We didn't. We, did, we didn't do what some of these other countries are doing right now today. Um, but the world is a better place, and we are the world superpower. But sometimes, quite frankly, we don't. We don't act like it, and I don't think we need to apologize to anybody. Well, we are. We're the we're the big tough guy that doesn't realize he's tough, and we think we need everyone's approval, and and we don't. But we we do that because we. It, we do lead strength through peace. If we wanted to take stuff, we could take it easily. Now, I mean, yeah. talk about energy independence. We wanted everything. We could grab it, but we don't. Um, and it's just, again, it's, it's the, you know, being separated by two oceans um, and having the protection that we do and all the handouts that we have is we're very, very complacent because everyone just deserves stuff. And that's just, you know, it's a hard truth to learn. And people are going to, unfortunately, I hope not, but they're going to have to learn it again. What, uh, what can the average person do? You know, the person who's living in Dubuque, Iowa, or pick anywhere in the country. They're, you know, they live in Littleton, Colorado. Like, what can they do? They see somebody in the military outfit or, you know, what, what can they do? And, and again, the, the, a lot of guys in the military don't want to be thanked for their service. because I mean, even to the point where, like, I, look, I, did, I, was, I was serving. It's my honor type stuff. But, but you know, just little things like a, a handshake or, a, you know, if they're drinking a beer, buy them a beer. If they're drinking a Coke, buy them a Coke or whatever, you know. Um, but, yeah, let them know they're appreciated. And, and they do. I mean, military is great. And, and, again, too, like with all the, the social experimentation into, in the military, most men and women in the military don't care. It's, it's the media who hypes it up. People just want people to pass the standards and let's be one team, one fight, which we are. Um, yeah, just give them a thanks and get them a meal or something if you see them traveling. Well, Rob, I, I can't thank you enough for your service and what you've gone through. And, and I'm glad you wrote it down about the operator because I, I, I got to tell you, if you want to get an inspiring book with amazing stories in it, uh, I can't encourage enough uh, of you all at home to read The Operator. I think you'll just be absolutely fascinated. And, you know, for your service, we're going to we're gonna bypass the normal 12 rapid questions because it just doesn't feel right. You, 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 you've earned <laughs> okay. a lifetime pass uh, from the questions. So uh, thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and, and for everything of that course. you've done. I need to plug this, too, because this has been really popular with people is that robertjoneal.com. I will uh, personalize and sign anything within reason in the book. And there are some funny requests. I had a, I had a dude buy one for his buddy's birthday that said uh, something like, Kyle, you kill selling mattresses the way I killed terrorists or something yeah. stupid like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did this. I actually did it as a, my brother, Alex. I, he wanted one. I told him how great it was. And so I signed up. You signed it and sent it to him. He said, I think I just signed one for your brother. And um, <laughs> there aren't a whole lot of chaffetzes out there. So, yeah, if you want a personalized one, it really is. Um, and, and I was glad to know that you really did it. It wasn't some, like, oh, yeah. some intern somewhere, that, but it was really you because you, you pinged me right after. Said, was that your brother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm really signing them. I, I sent them. I put them in the envelope myself. Either me or my wife. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that was that was great. So, Rob, thank you again for joining us, and thank you for your service to this country. And uh, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Anytime. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Rob O'Neill right after this. So the first part of the conversation we had with Rob O'Neill, um, we had before just everything broke loose in Afghanistan. So 
we knew Rob was going to be more than busy going into the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and uh, is kind enough to join us again so that we have a complete picture of what's going on here. But top line, uh, Rob, I mean, a lot of people sacrificed their lives and fought to get rid of the terrorist threat to the United States of America. When you look at what's going on in Afghanistan now, give me your perspective. Well, this is um, an example of what happens when subordinates are not um, truthful with their superiors. What we see a lot um, from certain ranks in the military all the way up into into Congress is subordinates will lie to their bosses because they don't want to upset them. And they eventually want to get promoted, too. And then up at the general officer level, too, they, they, you know, you show me a four star general and I'll show you someone who's surrounded by at least 12 yes men. So. They, they, they mislead them to tell them something is better than it is. So it's not, it's not, I mean, they're, they're making bad decisions based on false information. So what happened here is someone told someone that told someone that told the president that if we leave right now, we've been training this army for 20 years. They're twice the size of the Taliban and they will hold the line. They just assumed they could do that and then have a 20 year anniversary of 9-11. But people on the ground knew that most of the Afghans wouldn't stand and fight. They're there for an easy paycheck to have easy air support. They don't really have to fight in the first place. And I mean, and then people still argue with me that now, but I, I mean, the proof is right here. If you have someone that you've been training for 20 years to fight, you have our weapons and um, you're twice the size of the enemy and you lose in 10 days, someone wasn't fighting. And that's just the truth. Um, and then coupled with the fact that, I mean, I, and I've been saying since 2005, we don't need a bigger footprint in Afghanistan. We probably need fewer troops because we, we did what we wanted. We kicked Al Qaeda out. We, we need uh, cross border capability but for the love of god never give up bagram airfield and no one believed us and and they, they made that horrible decision i don't know who decided i'm amazed someone hasn't been fired yet for t- taking the military and the state department and the cia out of afghanistan before the civilians yeah and maybe nobody's been fired because they did exactly what the president and the vice president wanted to have done they said you know, my concern is that Biden and Harris actually came in and said, well, this is the number of troops rather than, hey, here's the objective. Now, how many troops do you need in order to get it done? Yeah, I mean, that's true. But if I'm if I'm, uh, um, you know, on the on the, the joint chiefs or a, a general in some position, if I if I recommend that we take the troops out first, I should be fired. If I recommend we don't take the troops out and they do something other than that, I would resign because being on the ground in combat so many different places, the men and women with whom I served, when we made a mistake this horrendous, we were either fired or we died. We were killed. And it's that simple. And these people, they have no shame uh, to the point of leaving, leaving the so many vehicles and weapons and aircraft there, knowing that they're going to get a high paying contracting job. And well, we just need to make more stuff. There's another government contract. It's the whole uh, military industrial complex that, that, uh, all these decisions are made based on, on personal wealth, personal power, and re-election. And, and these are people in the Beltway that have no experience on the ground. And a lot of them just won't listen to people below them, and this is what happened. And I'm, I'm convinced, based on this, this ineptitude, that this is probably the single worst decision in the history of the U.S. military. That's quite a statement, um, because, I mean, this story has not fully unfolded. We, we have people with American passports behind enemy lines. The president promised that he'd stay in order to get there, get them out, and have not. So let's kind of break down some of that stuff you talked about. 
I've been to both the Kabul airport and uh, Bagram Air Force Base. Now, don't get me wrong. A member of Congress kind of blows in and out, but you count it by the number of hours uh, compared to people who go and serve a year plus. But this Bagram Air Force Base is about 25 miles north of the Kabul airport. So they have a fundamental decision. They have options. That's not too far away. Kabul is in a much more difficult situation because the road narrows. It's like a it's like a funnel point. In fact, the guys that were traveling with me, and again, when I was a member of Congress, you've got guys like Rob O'Neill to help protect you. And they said, this is the most dangerous part of your trip because that road narrows. This little two-lane road that you have to go through and that you really can't secure that road along the way. But somebody made this decision to get rid of a fully fortified Bagram Air Force base that included locking up of a lot of prisoners, people who wanted to go out and have death and destruction to the United States. And we let all those people go as well. Yeah, we, we did that. And th- th- I mean, there's so much more to Bagram than just protecting Kabul. Ba- Bagram's a, a Bagram is, is a launching pad for uh, deterrence as far as Iran, China, Russia, everything over there. And we just gave it away. And, and Bagram was not, uh, um, you know, anyone who put up their right hand and, 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 and served the country, I've got the respect for. But Bagram was not a very difficult combat deployment. We, we actually used to refer to Bagram as the self-licking ice cream cone. It could support itself. You, you, you literally, you can defend yourself. You've got perimeter security. There's so much uh, offset space you can defend it. Um, we've got the best pilots in the world, the best jets, bombers, mechanics, uh, four airstrips. We've got a, a prime time hospital we got a prison and great birthing there's even green bean coffee fast food and karaoke night so when these when these um convoys full of taliban al-qaeda isis q or isis k whatever whatever the day is whatever we're calling the same group of warlords we can bomb them and have the pilots back in time for burgers and it's it's not it's not that bad you know you fly from ramstein air base all of a sudden you're you're in afghanistan that's but okay so that's a you know, yeah, it gets mortared, rocketed once in a while, and that sucks. And people have been killed doing that. But that's it's not like you're you're walking through minefields like the Marines did in, in Nangarhar. Um, it's you know, this is a prime uh, example of someone who has no foreign policy experience other than taking an Amtrak from D.C. up to Delaware. And he's getting bad advice from people. And so you're not going to you're not going to win many wars wearing suits and not being within a couple thousand miles of the place. And just whoever decided to get rid of Bagram seriously should should be done. Shouldn't work for anyone ever again. That's I, I, my, like my wife, who has no military experience, asked me the question: Why did we give the enemy a timeline, and why did we give up that airfield? Yeah, you and know, and Cong- see it. Why can't our generals? Well, and you know what, Congress has a role. To, they're the ones that appropriate these things. They're the ones that go out and and provide the funding for these types of things. Um, it's also interesting now, and this will have to play out a little bit, but the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, what's called to the CIGAR, has done 52 quarterly reports over the years. We always had, when I was chairman of the Oversight Committee, we always had him come in and give a briefing. Few members even paid attention. The public didn't get a whole lot of, I mean, there's some videos out there of these hearings, but not many people engaged in them. But back in 2018, they foreshadowed all this was going to happen, that we were spending far too much money. We were engaging people who are essentially illiterate. Now, they didn't use the word illiterate, but that's my word, having spent, again, hours on the ground there in Afghanistan. uh, You had people that we expected to take over the role of the United States military who had never held a pencil before. They can't count. They've never... 
you know, they, they were doing this exercise with this British commander trying to write down the, the license plates of cars that had gone by. And they're like, we don't know the alphabet. We don't know numbers. And the British commander is just rolling his eyes like, these are the people that are going to take over? And then to yeah. hear the president say, hey, you know what? Nobody foreshadowed the idea that these people wouldn't fight and that they couldn't do anything. It's always been that way, folks. It was that way for 20 years. They, they won't let you use the word illiterate because they don't want to offend people. The same way they don't want us. When I was a, a shooter, they don't want us killing people except in a nice way. I mean, if, and, and a lot of I mean, if you've never been to Afghanistan, um, the people will think you're lying to them. But when I say illiterate, I'm not talking about they can't even write. They don't know what time is, and they don't know how old they are. And I'm not making this up. And then they would force us, as we'd call them shooter statements. When we'd get engaged in gunfights, if we killed a terrorist, we needed to get two shooter statements from our Afghan partners. Uh, so they're supposed to make a statement and then uh, tell, you know, just to justify our existence, why we didn't murder. And so we're supposed to believe they wrote these shooter statements. They couldn't even sign their name. They would write an X. Like, this is, I'm not, I wish I was making this up. Um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you could tell, and, and there's a lot behind the scenes too, as far as the Taliban bribing them, China paying people off to throw their guns down because China's got interest in there. But um, you know, when we talk about people going there to visit, and I, I, you know, I've known you for a while, Jason. I know you, you would do it the right way when you try to show up without telling people, because like everything from the VA to Afghanistan, when there's a, a congressional delegation going, they give them a few weeks' notice, and every soldier, yeah. sailor, airman, and marine is cleaning the place, spit shining everything, memorizing their statements. Here's the questions we're going to ask. No, sh show up on a Wednesday morning without telling anyone. And then ask, ask an E5 what's going on. Then you'll get the truth. No, they no, don't do that, it that way. Again, that, you're right. That was my favorite thing. I would go, and then I'd just start walking a different direction. I'm like, I don't want the canned guy who's been practicing and had to fill out a report about what he's going to say in advance of meeting this member of Congress. I'd go and pull two guys off, and I'd push those handlers aside and say, sorry, I'm going to talk to these guys, and I don't even want you yep. to know who they are because I want them to just give me a candid answer. And, and they were always, you know, I, I would say, tell me what – I don't know what I don't know, so tell me what I need to know. And – and then you'd hear these horrific stories. Like we had a contractor, they were telling me about a, guy, a contracting group was paid to put in a 10 foot by 10 foot slab on this forward operating base. That same contractor was paid to install it and a contractor was the same contractor got the contract to destroy it. And he literally went, put in the cement, next day came back, took it out, got paid both times. It was ridiculous. <laughs> this is i mean this is the, that's the truth too with a, a lot of the contract a lot of yeah i mean yeah i don't want to get way off there but yeah just uh talk to someone who's really doing it and expect i mean even even with um you got that, uh, a marine commanding officer from a, uh, a training base that was relieved of duty for just asking um for someone to take responsibility and yeah. then they fired him i mean that that's that's what ha it's it, it, the chain of command the way that we did it at seal team six and granted you know we're a tier one unit but we would, we would do evaluations uh, on, a, on a horizontal level. And if, if the boss wasn't doing a good enough job, we would suggest to him, hey, we need to ch change this, change this. You know, are you worn out? Or we asked it too much of you? And they would do the same to us. And I actually, some of the best officers with whom I have, so I don't want to, you know, officers to think I'm bad enough on all of them. I've worked with some amazing officers. Um, but I, I had a, I, we were doing something one time, and I had one of my bosses with me, that, and I said, uh, well, you, we got to do this, but you are in charge, sir. And he said, he said, oh, make no mistake. I'm not in charge. I'm just responsible. <laughs> good, good point. I like the way he said that. That's funny. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good leader right there. 
Yeah, well, he understands what's the, the reality here. Um, all right, let's let's talk. I, I'm I'm mystified. Like I'm beside myself. I look at all this hardware, the billions of dollars of hardware from helicopters and tanks and transport vehicles and guns and I mean you name it, we were supplying it. And now that the Taliban's has taken it over, they're putting it in our face, doing you know, just oh, yeah. mocking us. What what is the rationale? Uh, like, why don't we just go in there and bomb the hell out of it and just destroy it? I don't know why we didn't scuttle it when we left. That's an awesome question. I don't have an answer to it. It's the same, the same question as, okay, we have uh, all of the Taliban leadership in the presidential palace right now. Why aren't we bombing it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, uh, we shouldn't have left it there. But again, it's just such a hasty retreat. Um, uh, people are just leaving stuff behind. And I think it probably got to the point. It was, it was so bad with the military leaving. I'm convinced with... with, with uh, all the, you know, all the machines that take retina scans and, and, and fingerprints, I'm convinced that people were turning those over to the Taliban just to get through checkpoints so they could get out. It was just way too hasty, um, you know, too big of a footprint to leave that early. Plus, we, we've just forgotten, like, we don't need to do anything. I don't need to give you a timeline. And, I, you know, the, well, we used to be the only superpower in the world, but we can go anywhere we want. And, and the rest of the world is lucky because we are so good, so big, so strong. We're the only people that, that, that invades places and, and then built it up for them. We could take over everything if we wanted to. But, I mean, it's a great thing, but it's also a detriment is uh, we're the good guys, and we act like good guys. Yeah, there's actually, if you go to the World War II uh, uh, outdoor on the mall there in Washington, D.C., uh, the memorial, there, at the base of one of the flagpoles there, there's this great saying about how we come and we conquer, but we don't take. And and that's what's been absolutely amazing about the United States of America and, and what we've done along the way. But you know what? When we leave tens of millions or billions of dollars worth of equipment there, it doesn't mean you have to actually – I mean, we ought to just send out a memo and say, hey, folks, you know those helicopters? and That, that stuff's ours. We didn't leave it for you. And if you got it, guess what? We're going to go over the horizon, and we're going to bomb the hell out of it. You might want to get out of the way. Yeah, well, I mean, we should have done that, no doubt about it. We, we had the capability to destroy it when we were there. And you don't want to – because that's not – I mean, it's not like the Taliban is just going to take it. Not, they can sell this now to the Iranians. They can sell it to the Chinese. I mean, prime example, there was a uh, – a U.S. Black Hawk helicopter flying around, I think, Kandahar the other day with a guy hanging from it. And it's a different story whether or not they hung the guy or it was just a, a Taliban fighter trying to hang a flag. I've heard different stories. But the point is, the helicopter was flying it, and there's no way the Taliban learned how to fly it in five days. So that means it's either a U.S.-trained Afghan or it's a Chinese or Iranian pilot in there. So they're going to be able to use the stuff that we didn't destroy. I don't know. I wish I had the answer. You know, I don't, I don't envy everyone making decisions now. But uh, I know what how I would have done it, and it certainly would have been leave it behind with the keys and run them with the air conditioning on. Let's uh, let's switch gears a second, uh, Rob, because we there are a lot of people who served, and I think they're questioning whether or not their their effort, their sacrifice, the the toll that it took on them personally and on their family, whether it was worth it, um, whether the country is grateful, or did, was it all for nothing? That twenty years later, going into nine eleven. Is the Taliban or the are the terrorists stronger than they were twenty years ago? What what do you what do you say to those men and women who served along the way? How should they look? I at it? I would say, the, well, the way they need to look at it, it all comes down to it from the to the micro, not the macro. Is that when you're going through the door, going into that field, you're fighting for the man or the woman next to you. And everyone that I know on the ground, every uh, branch of service, did an amazing job, and they're fighting for each other. Uh, and they should not think that anything they did was in vain. 
And, uh, and, and, and people, I know a lot of people that are having a tough time with this. My advice to them is to make sure you call somebody, even if you're having a good day, give someone a call because, uh, they might be having a bad day. Um, you know, you, and you may need to put the bottle down. Don't, don't self-medicate because, you know, I've been there. It's not a good place. It doesn't help at all, but also the realization, and this goes for all of our allies and there, there, there are most soldiers and sailors and, and airmen and Marines I've worked with from every country have been great. It's the politicians for whom they're working that are bad. The, the, the policies are bad. The people on the ground are great, and they, 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 and they shouldn't question what they were doing. Bad decisions were made, and it's just, it's hard to polish a turd like this, but um, um, everyone I've met on the ground did a great job. Yeah, you know, I heard Peter Schweitzer say, and I think it's the right way to look at it, that we are so proud of the boots. It's the suits that let us down. And there is a difference between the boots and the suits. And um, you know, there is a reason why we didn't take another major terrorist attack uh, like we did on 9-11. And it's because of a lot of good men and women. And you take out a lot of those threats uh, are people that are organizing to, you know, terrorize the United States of America or somewhere else or Americans in general. You don't always get to tell people about it. You don't always get to be able to say, hey, you know what? We just thwarted this event. And the, I, I, I yeah. hope every mechanic, every person who's working in food service, every person who is an actual, you know, shooter and going through doors, the whole spectrum, I hope they all recognize that there are millions of Americans that are so grateful for their service. Oh, there, there really are, too. The majority of Americans are great, too. I still get to travel and I talk to people face-to-face. I even ran into some people on the street today when I was working out, and they were saying the same exact thing. Just let everyone know that, you know, that we're really, really proud of them. I mean, but, but, but getting to people that are making bad decisions, I had a, I had a sour taste in my mouth, and this was on uh, September 12th. Uh, 2001, a day after, and President Bush and the, that administration decided they were going to call it Operation Infinite Justice. And they changed it that day to Operation Enduring Freedom because it was offensive to some people. It's like, are you, you're kidding me right now. The towers are smoking, and we, can't, we were offending people with our words. I was like, this, this is going to end badly. That's interesting. I never heard that story. What runs through your mind is the guy who took the shot to take out and kill Osama bin Laden. What, what do you think of when President Biden, when he talks about how we killed Osama bin Laden. Yeah, I mean, you know, President, I, I don't doubt that President Biden wanted bin Laden dead. I, I really, I'm not that partisan. He did say he didn't think we should go in and get him, and that was probably just based on um, stuff that's happened before with Boss Hostage Rescues, a political decision. Um, and Pre- President uh, Obama over, you know, overrode him because. It's, a, it's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter about getting reelected. This is the right thing to do. But I, I mean, he, he, President Biden just will jump on any, any happy bandwagon he can to try to look good. Because, I mean, if you recall, too, and a lot of people say this, uh, Senator Biden was, uh, was around when, when uh, uh, Saigon fell. And then Vice President Biden was around when we abandoned Benghazi. And now President Biden had the worst choice and you know, decision in, 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 as far as I'm concerned, military history. So, I mean, he can say we this or we that, but he, he really hasn't made a lot of great foreign policy decisions in you know, his, his, his whopping 50 years in office. Yeah, I think this will be his legacy and Kamala Harris's, quite frankly. You know, it's interesting. She takes the credit in an interview with uh, Dana Bash there at CNN saying, yeah, I was the last person in the room on Afghanistan and making those decisions uh, months ago. But I noticed when they tried to take a victory lap and say, hey, we did things the best we could. We couldn't have foreshadowed anything else. 
Uh, she wasn't standing by his side, and there's probably a reason why that. She's just a political monster and really has yeah. no military background whatsoever. No, not at all. I mean, and, you, and it says a lot about these uh, um, leaders when they can give a – not even give a speech when something happens. They have their press secretaries come out. President Biden, you know, retreats. A 20-year war won't take one question, but we can yeah. talk to Jen Psaki. You know, they, they send uh, Admiral Kirby out. They send other people. You don't, see, you don't hear from the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of the President very often. And when you do, it's like President Biden, all he does is read his book report to himself and just get angrier and angrier at the invisible man he's arguing with. Yeah, I, th- that's a whole nother conversation about the lack of openness, transparency. Personally, I thought they should have been giving awards to Donald Trump. You may not like what he was saying, but you know what? You could ask him any question almost any day, and he would stand there and answer it and give you a perspective and, and a justification. And that's the kind of openness and transparency I think we want. And it's so funny to me, all these people argue, oh, we got to go back to the traditions of what? Having some flunky write a press release? That's the way you want to get yeah. what's going on? And yeah. It was so wrong. Uh, last question, Rob. You've been so generous with your time. And again, we can't thank you enough for you and so many people like you that served and the sacrifice and what for whatnot it's a big weighty question i know we're just kind of a top line here but now what do we do i mean the president's made this decision we have pulled out of afghanistan now what do we do well you mentioned earlier jason about the people who are behind the scenes that uh, prevent attacks um we're kind of relying on them they're there they've been there and they're everything monitoring social media and, and uh, you know, uh, just message traffic and, and, and all, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, people can say what they want about um, certain levels of, of uh, you know, law enforcement, FBI, stuff like that. But there are people out there looking out for us and a lot of really, really good people. It's just uh, my favorite quote. I don't know if I said this before was that the, uh, uh, the loudest boos come from the cheapest seats. So we have great men and women out there looking out for us. And, and we have, I mean, America is, is is real. There's really really great people out there, and the majority of people are great. We're we're just we're we're mean to each other on Twitter, and when we're in traffic, <laughs> that's about it. People are generally good; and they look out for each other. I'm very optimistic. I just uh, it's you know it's we're taking a, a lot of steps backwards with uh, what's going on because I mean it's not just Afghanistan. The problem comes when now when China decides to take Taiwan, th- no one's going to depend on us to help. We just don't have the summit for it right now. So I I hope we everything from. The, the nonsense we're teaching our children as far as indoctrinating them in school to some of the stuff spewed from, from Hollywood and, and between, the, like I said, the Beltway in New York. Um, I, I think reality is starting to come around, too. And, you know, just, it, it, you know, the, the, I just hope the people's uh, voices are heard. Because, right, I mean, right now we need, we need great leaders in Congress. We need a lot of veterans uh, in the government. But we also need the faith in, our, in our, the way we're, that we elect people. Because right now no one really believes a lot of this was real. Well, I think you hit it on the head I mean, on so many fronts, right? And uh, at the end of the day, the United States of America is still the greatest country on the face of the planet. There's a spirit in America that I don't think will ever be overtaken, ever. But we better be smart about the threats that are true and real around the world. We better not be these snowflakes who just assume that everything's going to be just fine. That you know, We don't have to worry about that because I think the decision in Afghanistan and whatnot has repercussions that will radiate out into everywhere from Libya to Iran to, you're right, Russia and China. And, and our NATO allies who felt abandoned as well. And... Um, I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I look at it. I think you're probably right. That was probably the single worst military decision in the history of our nation. And I think that's the way Joe Biden and his administration, 
the Susan Rices and the uh, Kamala Harris's of the world will be remembered. But I guess for today, as and as we go into the celebration of the people who fought uh, and for the country, I hope they feel celebrated and buoyed up and and supported and loved and cared for. And I hope we take time to not just pause for a moment or two, but always remember, you know, what happened on 9-11 and, and that we have to be vigilant. And so hats off. And I can't thank you and all those who have served. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Uh, it's always great talking with you. Rob O'Neill, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us on Jason in the House podcast. Appreciate it. Again, I, I, there are amazing people who step up, amazing Americans with um, with unbelievable stories, ordinary Americans who step up and do extraordinary things. And I can't thank Rob O'Neill, everybody who was on that SEAL team, all the intelligence that went on to take out Osama bin Laden. And I can't thank enough for all those people, literally hundreds of thousands of people who served in Afghanistan, went over there, sacrificed to take out the terrorist uh, uh, threat. And for those that lived through and remember, maybe lost a loved one uh, on 9-11 and everything that followed from then, I, I just, it's such an important part of my life and our life as Americans in the history of this nation. So thanks again to Rob O'Neill. Uh, thanks for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. Uh, hope you can rate this, uh, subscribe to it, and you can go over to foxnewspodcast.com for some others, foxnewspodcast.com for some other really good podcasts. Um, and I hope you get a chance to listen to some of our, our other interviews. You know, the one we did with Brian Mast, I think was really, really compelling. Uh, Michael Walsh, who served uh, also, look through the list of, of who we've interviewed, uh, Congressman Chris Stewart, people who have served in our military and did extraordinary things. And I thank you again for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.